Okay. Let's let's start. Any any prayers for tonight? Any prayer requests? This is strange, but let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself through the day, your spirit, Holy Spirit. Um, those of you who are watching right now, it's one of my morning prayers um, to, to pray to God and Christ and the Son and the Spirit. Always, always. Um, so let me include it here. So Father, help us um, all to love your commandments. Um, to be the sons and daughters you've given us to be. Each one of the women here are your daughters. Each one of the men's your sons. Um, you are our father. Help us to be your children. Um, to become the young, <laughs> sorry, older <laughs> men and women that you've given us to be. Um, help us to be what you've given us to be. Christ, um, help us to be your friends. You called us to friendship with you and asked us to love the way you do and the condition of that was friendship um, you said that the disciples they were no longer disciple or servants but friends so help us to be your friends um, to walk beside you to do your will to put our lives away to grow um, um, in acts of self-denial to put ourselves away so we can love as you do everything about the purgatorio and gives us images of that. Holy Spirit, um, you offer yourself always as a gift. You're always present um, in your absence. You, you do things by making yourself absent as a free gift. Amazing. Um, it's what the Father and Son do so much too. Um, but thank you for um, the ways in which you bring the Father and Christ to us and the way you call us to be gifts ourselves. Strengthen us, please, in our efforts to do that, to make of ourselves gifts freely. Hard thing to do. Um, the Father's call to us. Christ shows us the way. So, um, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, um, thank you for your presence. Every one of us carries some aspect of each of you in us. Help us to fulfill them in all that we do. I ask for special prayers for our own family, for Suzanne and me, um, particularly for our kids, but for the two of us. Um, um, for Connie and um, letting go of her mother-in-law. Um, let her mother-in-law enter joy. And um, for all the prayers that everybody carries here in your hearts, for Melody and her family. Um, 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 watch over all of us and help us all to find a strength, some guide, some guidance in the works that we're reading to see you more actively in the world, what you're doing. Um, uh, maybe it's better to put it this way, create in us new hearts 
take away the blinders in our eyes. Help us to see, help us to learn to see as these works have been helping us to do. Help us to see you at work in our world. So increase our faith, strengthen us in that. Um, so that we can see the goodness of the world, particularly when there's a lot of things that are not good going on around us. We offer these prayers to you, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, let's let's do all the other. Oops, something's that was like somebody's falling. I'm gonna mute you guys if you uh, if Anytime you know, just jump on. Just unmute yourself. Um, very quickly, I want to get to Elliot um, because I want to keep moving forward without going back. But you remember in the first section, he has all these dependent clauses because I do not hope to turn, because I do not hope, because I do not hope to know. And it seems to me that <laughs> um, lots of poems are misread. This poem, I think, is greatly misread because I think most people don't read it as it is. They hear Eliot saying, I hope not to turn again. I hope, hope is a good thing. None of us don't want it. We all want to hope. He's not saying, I don't want to hope. I don't, um, 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 I hope not to know the wrong way. He doesn't st start on a positive. He's not saying, I hope, or I hope not to. He's saying, because I do not hope to turn. Um, so the condition is the hoping. What he's doing is turning away from that, because I think what he's doing is addressing, as I've said this, um, as I said it last week, I think he's addressing the tendency on our part as Christians, particularly, to take transcendent virtues, hope, faith, hope, and charity. They're transcendent. They're divine in character. We can't manufacture them. We can't make them our own. They're gifts given to us by our openness to Christ. We hope when we have no reason for hoping. We love when we have no reason for loving. That's why they're transcendent. They, they come from God. So I think Eliot's turning away from those, the, the vanished power. Why should he put his trust in a power that's going to vanish. Um, because I, knew, I know I shall not know the one veritable transitory power. Um, all of us put our trust in transitory powers and they undo us. They end up dis making us disillusioned and sad. Um, so he's turning away from those into the darkness. I think this is Eliot entering the dark night of the soul by taking all those conditions on which we make our lives and putting them away. And he's um, entering the dark night of the soul. I, I don't know if, um, if you guys are getting these notes I send you, but I sent you a, um, a copy of a section in, in the Four Quartets. By the way, the Four Quartets are online. They're the most extraordinary poems of the 20th century. If you've not read them, read them. They read like, they're not psalms, but they're, med they're, they're the, the most beautiful meditative poems of the 20th century. Um, they're extraordinary. In the middle of East Cor Corker, there's four poems. 
Burnt Norton, East Coker, Dry Salvages, and Little Gidding. In the middle of the second poem, East Coker, he has this passage. Um, it's section three. I thought it was two, but it's section three. This is from section three, and it speaks so directly to an aspect of Ask Wednesday that I think most people misread. So I want to offer this in the hope that it will help us here. This is from section three. Oh, dark, 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 they all go into the dark. The vacant interstellar spaces, the vacant into the vacant, the captains, merchant bankers, eminent men of letters, the generous patrons of art, the statesmen, the rulers, distinguished civil servants, chairmen of many committees, industrial lords and petty contractors, all go into the dark. And the dark, the sun and moon, and the almanac of Gotha, and the Stock Exchange Gazette, the Directory of Directories, and cold the sense, and lost the motive of action. And we all go with them. Into the silent funeral, nobody's funeral, there is no one to bury. I said to my soul, be still, and let the dark come upon you, which shall be the darkness of God. As in a theater, the lights are extinguished for the scene to be changed, with a hollow rumble of wings, with a movement of darkness on darkness. And we know that hills and the trees, the distant panorama, and the bold imposing facade are all being rolled away. Or as when an underground train in the tube stops too long between stations, and the conversation rises and slowly fades into silence, and you see behind every face the mental emptiness deepen leaving only the growing terror of nothing to think about. Or when, under ether, the mind is conscious, but conscious of nothing. I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope, for hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting Wait without thought, for you are not ready for thought. So the darkness shall be the light, and the stillness the dancing. He goes on. It, it's a beautiful poem. We, I hope we will do it sometime. But that's just to try to reinforce this sense that I think what Eliot is moving us towards in this poem is that dark night of the soul, where... Um, um, <laughs> We have to strain against everything in us that wants to have these conditions that we want met this way or that way or whatever language we give them. Remember, the, the, in the Christian tradition in the Middle Ages, hope was something from God. Love was something from God. Faith was something from God. In the modern world, we say, I hope for a bicycle for Christmas. I love that dress. We have taken those divine gifts and temporalize them, brought them down, to base them. And Eliot, because he's such a great poet, is struggling to find a language. This is one of the points we're going to talk about with Dante tonight. He's struggling to find a language to answer this condition, not only for Christians, but for a modern world that's no longer Christian. So in the first section, you know, he, he, he calls us to this and it ends remember teach us to care and not to care teach us to be still 
pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Pray for us now and at the hour of the death. It's into the darkness. It's an appeal to Mary. In the second section, he describes the prophes- uh, prophesizing of um, Ezekiel. Um, when he was called to prophecy to the Israelites, the, the, um, the city of God, the people of God, because they'd lost their way. And he um, prophesied to them and used the image of the dead bones as an image of the house of Israel dying, having lost itself. And he prophesied and the bones rose. They came to life again. But remember, it begins, Lady, three white leopards sat under a juniper tree in the cool of the day, having fed to satiety on my legs, my heart, my liver, and that which has been contained. This is interesting because one of the things we're going to read tonight has to do with man's liver, because the li- this is at the top of purgatory. The liver was understood to be the seat of man's passions, his lusts. So the leopard's an image of um, a creature sent by God to eat those things away. And I'm trusting that, that all of you have struggled, I, it, pardon my presumption, if it's a presumption here, that you struggled with your lust or desires so that you know the aching pain of that liver being eaten. If, you know, metaphorically, we can tell that, call it that way. And he prophesies the, 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 the death and rebirth of the house of Israel, God's people. And it ends with that address to the um, Lady of Silences, Mary. In the third section, he described his ascent up the stairways. It's an allusion to Dante and Beatrice. Um, um, there's no direct allusion to Beatrice, it's implied. But going up the stairs, the first and the second and third, um, and it ends distraction, music of the flute, stops and steps of the mind over the third stair. The fact that he would phrase it like that, the steps, the stops, the distractions, the music of the mind over the third stair, fading, fading, strength beyond hope and despair, climbing the third stair. The whole phrasing of that suggests it's ongoing. It doesn't stop. Just when we think we've gone past a chair, a stair, we're there again. Lord, I'm not worthy. Lord, I'm not worthy. Um, and that it ends, but but speak the word only. So the third section ends um, with a moment that precedes the Eucharist, because you know that in the Mass. Those are the words we speak, Lord, I'm not worthy, Lord, I'm not worthy, only, but speak the word only. Um, the word, Christ speaking the word, when he himself is the word, offering himself. Okay. So here's the fourth section. I'm just going to read it and leave it and get to Dante. And we'll, we'll pick it up again next week. Section four. Who walked between the violet and the violet, who walked between the various ranks of varied green going in white and blue in Mary's color, talking of trivial things in ignorance and knowledge of eternal dolor, who moved among the others as they walked, who then made strong the fountains and made fresh the springs, made cool the dry rock and made firm the sand in blue Larkspur, blue of Mary's color, Somenavos. It's a it's a line traditionally um, in Spanish ritual sayings, and it's actually um, the beginning. It's the beginning of line of our not Danielle, 
the poet that Dante meets in the Purgatorio. We looked at him last week. I'm gonna I want to go back and pick that up for a minute. It's the it's the opening lines of one of his poems. Be mindful of you know whatever follows that. Here are the years that walk between, bearing away the fiddles and the flutes, restoring one who moves in the saint in the time between sleep and waking, wearing white light folded, sheathing about her folded, the new year's walk restoring through a bright cloud of tears, the years restoring with a new verse, the ancient rhyme, redeem the time, redeem the unread vision in the higher dream, while jeweled unicorns draw by the gilded hearse, the silent sister veiled in white and blue between the yews behind the garden god, whose flute is breathless, bent her head and signed but spoke no word. But the fountain sprang up and the birds sang down, redeem the time, redeem the dream, the token of the word unheard, unspoken. To the wind shake a thousand whispers from the yew, and after this our exile. I'm, I'm trusting you all notice and probably feel disconnected a little bit. The, the sense of disconnection. Eliot's not giving a narrative. He's n in narrative time, one thing follows another in sequence. You know that when you tell a story. Eliot's giving fragments. In one way, it's a perfect reflection of the modern mind. We've lost a narrative time. We, we, we're not anchored. Um, so he's giving us images that seem disconnected. What he's doing is putting the responsibility on us to, to find their connections. You know, that's why when I began, I asked you guys to supply the independent clause for the first. He's asking the reader to do something. It's not like an enabling mother or father, you know, doing everything for Johnny. Um, poets have done that forever. They, they tell you what they're doing and... That's not so with the modern poets, not modern artists, not modern poet. They're, they're offering us something and putting us in a place where we have to actively do something ourselves. Okay. Okay. Any, let's, let's hold the comments, even if you have them on Elliot, because I want to get to Dante. We've, there's so much here that I, I want to be careful of. So a quick review of Dante. Um, and, and let me say this, because if I don't say it now, I'm going to forget. We're going to end tonight looking at the end of the Purgatorio and the beginning of the Perdiso. And um, in both of those sections, Dante's going to be doing something with language that's a lot like what Eliot's doing. He's putting us in a position in which he's not explaining everything to us, He's presenting something to us, and we have to work to figure out what's there. Let me put this differently, because it's so important. It's really important. You know that when we go to Mass, because of our faith, we enter church and we see an altar. I, I, I don't know of a Catholic church that doesn't have a Catholic, or an altar at its center. Everything in the math, Mass goes towards the sacrifice. It's the Eucharist. When the Eucharist is offered, the, the priest makes a blessing, sanctifies it. He calls down the help of the Holy Spirit to transform it. 
And the, the Mass ends with everybody receiving Christ. If a Protestant were to walk into a Catholic church, the likelihood, or certainly the lower forms of the Protestant denominations, not the higher fund, but the, because the higher ones um, keep the same Mass. But if a Protestant were to walk into a Mass, he'd say, that's nothing but pure superstition. Now this is absolutely crucial to get here. If he'd walk in, he'd say, that's a wafer. Are you out of your mind claiming that's God in a wafer? Or that if you drink from that cup, you're receiving his blood? You are superstitious. You are out of your mind. The, the great irony of this for me is the Catholics say they, or the Protestants say they base their faith or their beliefs on faith and yet deny an act of faith here for a Catholic when he says, you know, that's the body and blood of Christ. How do you find a language that's adequate? Because when we go to Mass, everything that takes place is very human. It's ordinary. A priest blesses a piece of bread. He blesses a cup of wine. People eat the bread and drink the wine and go home. Nothing could seem more ordinary. Except we believe that that's not true. I've been pressing this point now for a year. That that moment... Um, it um, helps us approach the apophatic. It takes us to an in-between place. Where are we? When we receive Christ into us, we, our belief is we're in his kingdom. So on the way out to the parking lot, we're here and not here, there and not there. So we're in a strange world. How do you find language to render that? So at the top of the Purgatorio, when Dante is received by Beatrice, and Virgil leaves, she's going to perform two masks. She's going to present him to two masks, two theatrical performances. Um, one that presents the whole history of the church, and, or the, the whole embodiment, actually, of the church, and the other one that presents the unfolding of the church in history. But they're all in abstract terms. So Dante is participating in these highly allegorical Masks. You all know what a mask is. It's in the Renaissance. It was a performance, a short, um, elaborate kind of colorful performance. Dante is going to do everything in abstractions, and I'm I'm assuming that if that when you guys read that, because I know you all read it, <laughs> that you blinked and thought, "What in the world is he doing?" But I hope everybody understands here. Dante's task at that point is to try to show transcendent realities by using ordinary things. It's exactly what goes on in the mask, and it asks us to enter into these things that are being represented and know that there's a deeper, higher spiritual meaning to all that's unfolding. Okay? So, it, just to be aware of that when we get there, um, because at the end of the purgatory, Dante's doing something to prepare us to enter the heavens. Virgil is no longer adequate to help Dante relate to that. Um, only, only a human being whose powers of reason are imbued with faith can help Dante do that. Because at that point, Dante's being asked to go beyond Virgil. Okay?
So let's let's start. So it's important for us when we think about what Dante's been giving us in his presentation of the Inferno and the Purgatorio is that he is a poet who has lost everything in his life. His life is like the Job story. He was sent in exile and had to give up everything. So Dante writes out of a condition of complete renunciations. This is really, that's why I'm saying and why I made the point in Eliot. That Dante had to enter a darkness because everything on which he depended was lost to him. So he had he had he was in a position where he could bring a whole different view of the world than most of us who are used to having things, who depend on them for our lives. Dante was in exile. He could not return home. He wrote the poem in exile. So everything he's giving us comes from somebody who knows the world because he's lost it. He's seen what the world can do to people himself and themselves and can bring a different view of it to, to the way he rendered it. And it, the, the great fortune for us is the world that he's rendering is the prototype of the modern commercial regime. It's our regime. It's the commercial republic. So he's able to show us the implications of the regime, we, the political world we live in. And as you know, the Purgatorio has been a freeing individuals, freeing themselves out of that world. When Casella comes in the boat to start member at the beginning of the Purgatorio, it's described as, as um, leaving Egypt, in exile from Egypt. He's coming into a world that will help him um, shed himself of Egypt, the things of the world, so that he can enter paradise. Four, four, four of Dante's great concerns um, that hold true through the whole of the Purgatorio is reconciling law and love. They're not in opposition to each other. Justice and mercy have to be reconciled. That's what Christ did. That's where we're going to end tonight in the Paradiso, Canto 7. Reconciling law and love, regaining sight. Um, we can describe the journey of purgatory as the purification of a soul through penance and suffering. That it's only through penance and suffering that we get cleansed of these attachments and prepare ourselves for God. Um, the third is idolatry, the way in which things of the world can so take hold of us that we can't free ourselves, and poetry. Um, and you know that he focuses on poetry at the very end of the the uh, Purgatorio. Um, Stasius enters the poem, um, and I, I suggested this last week. I, to me, it's a, he's a mysterious figure, and he, he puzzles critics. It seems to me that Stasius is an image of a convert who could not take his faith for granted, who had to step into it, but he represents um, in 900, actually it's 1150 years, he, he only accounts for 900, four, 400 of them on, on the level of avarice and I think uh, 500 on uh, sloth, 900 years, but he's, um, he's, he's, he died 1150 years before, so there's a couple of hundred years that he spent on some other ledges, but um, he represents a man 
bringing a tradition, a past, forward and living in the present. And you, you know, there's that beautiful exchange between Virgil and Stasius when Stasius realizes this is the poet he loved and bends down to hug him. And we're seeing a love exchange between artists, um, one of whom um, lived after Virgil and who is now living in the present. Um, so allegorically, this is my thought. I mean, don't take this as God's word, but you know, people have, have different thoughts of this. This is my own thought on this. It seems to me, Stasius allegorically is meant to image the change that's taking place in Dante, because Dante's at a point, close to a point where Virgil's going to leave. So in Stasius, we've got an image of a pagan converted, but who was cowardly, afraid to speak up, and he did this time. So allegorically, it seems to me he's, we're meant to see him as the embodiment of a tradition and um, the, the power of sight that comes to somebody with that tradition is one of the things we've been talking about. The medieval Christian was unreflective. They just grew up and accepted their faith. They didn't reflect on it. That's not so with Dante. Dante's reflected on it. He's had St. Thomas behind him. What we're seeing is a man learning to grow into a tradition and the way that tradition helps deepen his sight. It's what we've been about for this year. So Stasius is an image of a natural man converted who carries that forward in a shaky way, but nevertheless it's there, allegorically. And I think allegorically we're meant to see that that's true of Dante as well, because he knows that tradition. He's carrying it forward, even though, even though he keeps learning. He keeps learning from these men, but Stasius is alive in the present. Um, we got to the the um, the glutton, the level of the gluttonous, and saw that Dante met um, these poets, um, um, Bonaganta at the level of gluttony, and then. Um, Arnett, Daniel, and um, Guido on the level of the lustful, and I want to go there now. Um, so let me stop. That's that's where we were when we stopped last week. Dante had gone through the fire. I want to go back to that. Um, he and he and Virgil go through the fire, and they sleep on the stairs. Dante will have his third dream. It'll be a dream of Leah and Rachel. Um, the contemplative and active life before he goes to Eden and has this extraordinary meeting with um, Beatrice. I want to I want to go back to the level of the lustful just for a moment, but let me stop there. Any questions about anything we've covered up to this point? I know there's a lot there. <clears throat> No? I must not be doing something right here. Okay, um, let's... I want to go back um, just to... I keep dovetailing because I want to go back to where you were and try to pick it up. Go to... Uh, um, Canto 25... Stasius has just given this extraordinary discourse on body and soul. 
if we had more time, I'd want to go into it. He, it's really important because he's answering the question, how do souls manage to keep their shape so you can identify them after the body's gone? It's a really important question because Plato got it wrong and Averroes, a, um, a Muslim philosopher, got it wrong too. St. Thomas got it right and Stasius is speaking through him. He's showing that the body and soul are essential. They're united. We can't live in this dualism. A Christian can't. The Protestant slips into it when he says nature's depraved, that the body's an ugly thing. That's platonic. Um, he, after this, um, after, the, uh, after his discourse, the two are about the, to step onto the level of the lustful. Okay, and I want to go back to it for just a moment. Turn to page 338. He's just given this discourse on how the body and soul are related. It's a, it's a page and a half. It's beautiful. You should read it um, again um, you know, to answer questions about it. And they, they come up to the level of the lustful and they see these souls in fire. Um, actually passing through the fire and, and two other groups of souls passing each other. Page 338. We had by now arrived at the last round. This is it, apparently. This is it. Having made our usual right turn, our minds became absorbed by something else. There from the inner bank, flames flashed out straight, while from the ledge, a blast of air shot up, bending them back, leaving a narrow path along the edge where we were forced to walk in single file. And I was terrified. There was the fire, and here I could fall off. Remember, I made the point. Lust is, remember, we're getting closer and closer to love. And so the distinction between disordered loves and real love gets finer and finer. Lust is the one sin that most resembles love. It, it asks for a, a finer response. In such a place as this, my leader said, be sure to keep your eyes straight on the course, for one could slip here and easily fall. Um... Sume Deus Clementiae, God of Supreme Clemency, is the song of the, of the ledge. I saw spirits walking in flames. I watched them, but I also watched my steps caught between fear and curiosity. When they had sung that hymn through to the end, they cried out loudly, Virum non cognosco. That's Mary's, I know no man. So these are the goads for the um, lustful, right? It's to restrain the lust. She knows no man. When it was finished, they cried out Diana, kept to the woods and chased out Helica, whose blood had felt the poison lust of Venus. Diana was the virgin goddess in the ancient world. So they hear the, the, the goads um, coming from the souls who are in the fire. And this I think they do continuously do... Wait, so... Behind Diana and the the Mary goad, come humans. They came. The, then came the hymn again. Then came their shouts, praising those married pairs, who had been chased as virtue and the marriage law requires. And this I think they do continuously as long as they must learn with must burn within the fire, the cure of flames, the diet of the hymns. Now you know that the two groups that pass each other um, represent unnatural lusts. What, or one of them is natural lust. It's the ones here, if you turn the page. 
on page 342, the ones that Donnie picks up with um, are natural lusts. So it's still an excessive sin. It's an, excess, it's an excessive passion. 342. The group that just arrived, Sodom and Gomorrah, the rest, Pasiphae enters the cow. Sodom and Gomorrah is the sin of um, sodomy um, that was represented in those two cities and that God destroyed. The other sin by um, Pasiphae was the sin of that king um, who made a pledge to Poseidon and was given this cow, this bull, remember the minotaur, and his wife fell in love with it and um, the king constructed this artifact, this effigy, um, and placed the bull inside of it and the wife um, had sex with it. So we've got two unnatural forms of love. Now it's crucial to remember here, in hell, the homosexuals were in hell. Clearly, for this is really important because we're coming to something that to me is sort of really amazing in a second. Homosexuality is not a damnable... All sins are damnable, but it doesn't automatically damn anybody. It's like any other sin. It's an inordinate passion. Hold on to that for a moment because what's interesting here is that the all of the people, even the ones in the fire who are presumably married and lawful, are are committing themselves to a flame to purge themselves of a lust. Outside of the fire are these two other rows, one unnatural and the other natural lust. So they're both successive. Now I want to go back and I'm going to ask, I'm going to put Suzanne on the spot here. Because last week, remember I raised this question, why, why is fire an appropriate contrapasso for the lustful? Remember we talked about it because fire itself represents the lust it's a passion, it's a fire, a flame. But it also represents the purification. Both the sin and the purification. Now here's my question, because we didn't tackle it next week, but we're going to take a minute with here because this is too important. The, the couples inside the flame are married, but they're still undergoing penance. The two rows outside represent two different kinds of inordinate lusts. Um... <clears throat> What's an okay sex for Dante? Because the ones in the fire are married and they're still undergoing penance. They're in the fire. Does everybody understand my question? What makes marital sex lawful? I don't want to say chaste, but I'm trying to avoid that word. But because the, the line, I hope everybody's seeing, the line is getting very fine right now. Very fine. And it's going to lead to, to me, an extraordinary revelation in a minute. But is that question, is my question clear for you guys? Any thoughts, any responses? That what makes, because I think most of us know at this age, the passion of sex. Most of us are married or um, have fights with each other and get passionate and, um, you know, have to, pick ourselves up again and what's for Dante what what or here I want to turn to Suzanne because the married couples are in the flame so the flame is both a punishment and a purification is that clear it's absolutely crucial we don't see another contrapasso that paradoxical this one is so what's because you you said last week when we talked that it was I mean, you only, you only named the negative, but you didn't go to the other one. What, in, as Dante's presented it, 
and wait, by the way, just so that everybody's really clear here, I want to, Mil Milton hated um, Solomon, absolutely hated him, and his Puritan, he and his thousand wives. In the middle of the Paradiso, the very center of the Paradiso, the two groups, Dominicans and Franciscans, are going to meet, and in the middle of that discussion, it's going to be a dance between them. They're going to celebrate Solomon. And Dante's absolutely clear that he was the wisest man in the world. That's biblical, by the way. That's out of the Bible. So, so there's a celebration implicitly of the human body. Dante is not Puritan. He, he couldn't be farther away. And I'll make the point again when I look at the three poets. He's not Puritan. So what's he saying about sex? What, how do we look at marital sex? Doc, what do you... What do you because you describe the fire as punitive, but there's another aspect. So how can you describe? Can you get it at all? You mean why the married couples are in the fire? What if there's an ideal? If there's something married couples are called to from this image, in the way that they are intimate, sexually intimate with each other, what is it? Can we describe it? This may be too fine. I just think it's an interesting. They become one. Sorry? They become one. Who's that? It's Michelle. <laughs> Michelle, can you flesh that word here? By ironically, I'm using the word flesh that out. <laughs> can you put that in, in sexual terms? What does it mean? Flesh, flesh that out. Pardon the pun. Um, the sacrament of I may be getting in. I may be getting in over my head here, right here. But can you? Because I don't know. Could it be for the for the producing of children? You know that that it's uh, good. What's well, good both ways, I guess. But. but does that mean that if you if so, let's say you can't have children, does that mean you shouldn't have sex? Is no, um, that's wrong. <coughs> Can I throw this out that if if the if the sexuality or if the if the intimacy seeks the good of the other yes. as well as the good of the self, then it's it's acting out of love. Yeah. Yeah. Good for you, Mike. That's. Would you have added anything, Doug? No, that's what I was going to say. It's the it's the internal motive of each of the partners coming yeah. together that they're coming together in love, which means for the good of the other. Yeah. Um, Whatever that means in the way of sexual explorations, you know, when a married couple begin to have sex and learn, I mean, I, we're, I don't want to get into that, but I, but I think the principle, the spirit of it is just what Mike said and what Suzanne was saying, that, that, um, that it's, I just think if, if I can make any sense out of what Dante's doing here, it's that, that the sexual passion is a strong one. It's the last one before paradise. We, we're seeing three different kinds of love. A natural lust that's grave. An unnatural love that's grave. And a marital love that's being um, purified. So there's something even in married couples that has to be... So... Um, if you if you take this as an image and, and go back to pride, it just seems to me that 
the, the, the most important thing to take about the whole of the purgatorio, it's the purification of a soul learning to love as Christ does through penance and suffering. The, those things that most people want to avoid, and I'm including myself in that just powerfully, I don't think any of us like suffering. Um, but Dante's showing that um, we come to ourselves, of, we, we come to be more fully who we are and closer to Christ through those things. So here we are at the end of the Purgatorio, about to enter um, Eden. Any, any, um, any last thoughts before? Um, I just I want to look at the poets again, and then I want to I want to make one statement about that because it's just stunning to me. I don't think I'd ever fully realized it until this last week. Any questions about this or comments? Okay, in Canto 24, don't go there. Canto 24, Dante, Dante meets Banagianta. Remember, he was the founder of a school of poetry. In the next level, he's going to meet Guido, who Dante describes as his father on page 344. Um, I felt the same, though more to hear the Spirit's name himself, father of me and father of my betters. All who wrote a sweet and graceful poetry of love. That poetry, that troubadour poetry, is called the sweet Doccia Stil Nuova. The sweet new poetry. Sweet new verse. Now stop and think about that. So, Bonaguenta is one, Guido is another, and are not, are not Danielle on page 345, was somewhat pornographic. So we talked about this. What Dante's showing us, now here, we've, we've got three poets, Dante, Virgil, and um, Stasius. That's what, six poets? Three, yeah. Is that right? Three, six poets. Six poets at the top of Purgatorio. And three of them represent schools. And, and Dante's, remember his line, when he described his poetry, he said, he wrote his poetry in response to the spirit. Um, I think it's on 330. 3.30 at the bottom. Um, when he's talking with Bonaguenta and um, he's being praised for his poetry, Dante says, I said to him, I am one who when I love, who when love inspires me takes careful note and then gives form to what he dictates in my heart. So you got one poetry who's tremendously idealistic, he lives in his head, he's platonic, he denies his body, on one extreme, you've got um, Danielle at the other, who tends to be pornographic, celebrates the body. You've got Dante in the middle doing both, finding a virtue, reconciling the two, the body and the soul. But notice, um, he says, 
Guido, father of me and father of my brothers, my betters, all who wrote a sweet and graceful poetry of love. The Dolce Stil Nuova, sweet new style, sweet new style. These are men, and the kind of poetry they write is a sweet new style. It's gentle, it's sensitive. Look at Dante. On the one hand, you've got somebody platonic, living too much in his head, and the other, somewhat pornographic, and Dante moving with the spirit. The scene reminds me of that scene with Nicodemus when he said, how can you be reborn again? And, and Christ says to him, in the spirit, by moving with him. Now think about what Dante's been doing with his poet. Has he idealized things? No, he has not. Has he made them pornographic? No, he has not. Has he turned his eyes away from ugly things? No, he's not. Has he failed in any way to represent beautiful, transcendent things? No, he hasn't. He's given us, I think, probably, you know my own belief, Dante and Shakespeare have done things that no other artists have ever done. What Dante's done in the Commedia, no other poet has approached. So the kind of poetry he's writing is, in a sense, a model of what good art should be. To move with the spirit, everything good about the spirit, in our bodies, picking up our sins, trying to put them away as we go along. He's not condemning, he's not idealizing, he's not romanticizing, he's not false, covering them up. He's shown us the nature of sin in the inferno. Here he's showing us the nature of sin as it's being purged. And he's being, it seems to me, very realistic in, in what's going on with the people engaged in either of those things. And here at the, um, at the top of the Purgatorio, he's reflecting on the nature of poetry, of art, and the importance of the spirit for creative creative intuitions for creative, any creative work. Let me stop here. Any questions on, there's, because there's, oh, here, here's, here's where I wanted to go. Here's what's interesting. Sweet new style. These are men. There's an effeminacy to this poetry. Three of these men are homosexuals. Dante's not condemning them. What he's showing is that there's a sensitivity to these men that other men don't have. He's not condemning them. To me, it's, pretty, it's sort of amazing because I don't think it's any accident. Lots of men who go into the arts have a soft side to them. How many men, how many men love poetry? Not a lot of men. So there's an there's a interesting thing going on here with these poets. Um, two of them are classical pagans. Dante is Catholic. Stasius is a convert. These other men were raised in Catholic cultures and were or two of them at least were homosexual. I don't think it's an accident that, that this is related to Dante's sweet new style, um, the gentleness or sensitivity. Um, just as a sort of backstory to this, one of the one of the arguments that Plato makes in the Republic, which is a the classic work of education in Western civilization. He said that the great task of education is how to form good souls. How to form good souls. Dante, Dante's taking this seriously. This is what this is about, how to form good souls. In education, education is one of the most important 
what occup activities, what to call it, in our nature, how do we educate well? Plato said the great burden was how to make a man tough so when, he, when it came time for battle, he could cut off limbs. How do you make a man tough and still make him gentle? He said, if you, if you, if you raise a boy using just gymnastics, you're going, to turn, you're going to turn him into a, what do you call a, um, what do you call those, Doc, what's the word? Um, a jock, you know, a sort of insensitive jock. If you raise him on music alone, he's going to become soft. The great task is, how do you reconcile those two opposites? So Dante's dealing with those tensions right now, and he's bringing them to a fine, fine pitch here at this point, just before we're about ready to go. Remember, the whole spirit of the Purgatorio is accepting sins, praying, imports of prayer for dealing with our own sins and helping others through our prayers and doing penance. Let me stop. Any questions before we go up to Eden? Something must be wrong. It must be doing <laughs> must be doing something wrong here. Connie, you look like you got a question. Come on. Well, I came up with one. Um so who was it? Um I think I don't even remember who it was, but um so so people let's say if, if I made it to purgatory and uh, a really good friend of mine didn't and, and made it to hell, there was some part in purgatory that it, where I read that that so you're aware of that basically so in other words like if you know if somebody makes it to heaven and your husband makes it you know not to heaven or, or vice versa um i've wondered about that <laughs> go ahead what why <laughs> what's your wonder wonder and what's your well, gift what i had in my mind was that you know since sin uh separates you from god and you're basically forgotten that perhaps you know if you're in heaven uh, you're not gonna know that person. You know what I mean? I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just don't think it's. I just don't. I mean, I can't even imagine being in heaven and then knowing that someone that I love deeply uh, is is uh, condemned. Yep, yep, yep. I, I mean, I. Anybody want to respond? Anybody have a a thought for Connie? I think it's a wonderful question. Connie, your observation is right on because, um, and it's interesting to, boy, it's a really good question and a, a tough question. I, I don't know that I can answer it, Connie. There are several can, examples. Can I try something? Wait, wait, just one second. Can you, there's, Go we've got several instances in the Purgatorio where, and even in the Inferno, or in the Purgatorio where individuals acknowledge that somebody they love or, or somebody related them, um, a brother of a sister is, is going to be in hell when the sister's not. Um, I think there's even a, um, a similar scene in the Paradiso. Um, and it's interesting that you should do, you should say that because we're going to get to this in a minute in, um, at the top of the, um, the Purgatorio in Eden, Dante's going to, um, Matilda's going to take him to the river Lethe in, in which all of his memories of bad deeds will be, washed away 
and in the river you know it, where his memory of good deeds will be restored. Um, it, it amazes me, and what makes it even tougher for me, and it goes to this, this question that I think Melody is, um, has been so pointed about, you know, that, um, remember that one of the struggles Dante had in getting through hell is to learn to control his pity. You know, that if you, um, to learn to love God means to learn to hate sin, um, and pity can keep you from doing that, and if that's so, you're in some ways opposing God, and we saw that a number of times in the Inferno. So this whole struggle to order our loves, Dante doesn't think pity's unnatural, he thinks it's natural, but he sees clearly that it's a dangerous thing. What do you do with the feelings you have for somebody you've loved, who's separated? I mean, my only answer to that is in, in heaven, I, and I think we'll see it more and more, is that as you learn to love God more and more, you love the goodness and your mind turns away from those things that weren't, even, even if you had you know, special ties to somebody. It's a tough, 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 tough thing emotionally to, it's not get our heads around, it's getting our heads and our hearts around it, but, sorry, Melody, go ahead, you go ahead, sorry. No, that's okay, that's kind of what I was going to say, is that the purgatory, the whole idea of purgatory is to look at your life, to see uh, where you've gone wrong, and accept that you've done wrong things, and and that has to do with the people around you as well. Boy. You know, instead of blaming Boy. others, Boy. you look at your own life. So you kind of have to know what's going on with other people. I think that makes sense to me. Yeah. And then to your point about the rivers, well, and your point about pity, when you take responsibility for your own actions, you also have to allow others to take responsibility for theirs. So that's why you have to drop that pity and then that river is a wonderful idea to make you forget about everything else so that when you're in heaven, you're just surrounded by love. And it's not like you're looking for specific people to love because you love everyone. Right. God, good for you. Oh, the two of you are so good. Class over. Class over. <laughs> Class over. We can go home. God bless you guys. Um. I think we can I'm go on. I'm still wanting to know about the the married couple and the sex and the fire. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going back there. I think that I think <laughs> I think the answer that that Mike Michael and Suzanne gave is, you know, that whatever they do sexually, however, whatever goes on, you know, I don't want to get into, but it seems to me in married life that the struggle for all couples um, is is to grow into that intimacy in which what happens when you are sexually intimate is you are learning to offer yourself to another and receive, receive what the other offers. So that there's extraordinary, it, it goes, God, this is just amazing to me. We're going to get this in the Paradiso because what we're all called to is indwelling. S sexually, that's what happens. You offer yourself to another and you receive what the other has to offer. And if you're doing it for the love of the other, the good of the other, it means, I mean, I don't think that's going to come e easily to anybody, but I think if I can, an I mean, in a struggle to answer a very difficult question, I think abstractly that's, that's the answer to my question about what's going on there, there. And add to it what, what Connie just said, and I, I thought what Melody put so well is, 
you know, um, sort of fills it out for me at least. Let me go on because I want to um, I want to get to uh, um, Eden. Some beautiful things that happen when Dante and Virgil and Stasius arrive at the earthly paradise. They're greeted by this woman whose name is Matilda and um, take a look on page 352. It's stunning Dante's power as a poet on page 352. Now, eager to explore on every side the heavenly forest thick with living green which made the bright new morning light more soft the fragrance of it, the birds singing, um, the birds welcomed in full-throated joyful sound, the days beginning to their leafy boughs, um, and um, um, where was the, uh, hold on first there, did you all get my note about synesthesia and what that is? I'm not sure that everybody's familiar with that term. Um, on page 349, go back a page before we get there. Page, actually 348, sorry. Um, Dante is passing through the flame with Virgil. We went through that last week and you know that it's hotter than burning glass. And he, nobody can get to Eden without passing through it. And then he hears um, this. From somewhere else there came to us a voice singing to guide us, listening to this. We emerged at last where the ascent begins. Venite benedicti patris mea. Come you blessed of my father came pouring from a radiance so bright I was compelled to turn my eyes. Synesthesia is the experience of one th sense through another. So we can feel a color, let's say, or hear a sight. Because what's happening when Dante and Virgil um, ascend to Eden is that they're recovering something of that sense that our parents had, Adam and Eve, before they fell. So the senses weren't divided the way they are now, so that when we hear it's a sound, or when we see it's an image. Are you all following? What Dante's showing us is the senses seeing something heard, or feeling something colored, or... Um, he does that repeatedly. The, um, it's like the beauty is becoming overwhelming. Um, um, 350, that precious fruit which all men eagerly go searching for in many different boughs will give today peace to your hungry soul. Growing desire, desire to be up there, was rising in me with every step I took. I felt my wings were growing for the flight. Go on over 351. You now have seen, my son, the temporal and the eternal fire. You've reached the place where my discernment now has reached its end. I led you here with skill and intellect from here. On, let your pleasure be your guide. St. Augustine, love and do what you will. Your will is right, whatever you do. You can't be afraid, you can't back off. I crown and mitre you, Lord of yourself. Um, Matilda greets him. Um, 
and she will describe what she does, will explain Eden on page 354. She says on 354 towards the bottom, this place is new to each of you, she said. It could be that you find yourself amazed, perplexed to see me smiling in this place. Um, and she says, not to feel delight would be a wrong. It's as if a wonder of paradise were recovered and um, Dante, Virgil, it, it's, it's going to be curious what Virgil in because I want to get to that, um, are seeing something they've never seen before. Um, just then, go over to um, page... Three fifty-eight. Suddenly, Dante hears a sound, and it's as if the air vibrates. And this long procession begins to approach him. It's allegorical. It's it's um, it's too much to go into here. On page three sixty, um, they sang as they moved on. Benedicta, thou of all of Adam's daughters, blessed be thy beauty through all eternity. There are all the Bibles of the book. There are the four gospel writers. Um, the, the writers of Acts, the letters, are all there. And they're all leading Beatrice in a chariot. So in a sense, it's the Old Testament and New Testament embodied, um, bringing a Christ bearer to Dante. Okay? Um, on page 361 at the bottom, there were three ladies circling a dance, here the right, um, near the right wheel, one was red, so red she hardly could be visible. Um, the second looked as if her flesh and bones were fashioned out of emerald. The third had all the whiteness. There are the three virtues, faith, hope, and charity in different colors. Um, there will be four ladies, the, the four natural virtues. Um, I'm trusting everybody remembers. What are the four natural virtues? Prudence. Temperance. You be still. <laughs> Come on, you guys. Prudence. Suzanne's helping. You shouldn't be. Justice. Justice. Prudence. Prudence. Fortitude. Fortitude. There's one. Justice, prudence, fortitude, and temperance. Temperance. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. Um, um, on page 363, when the chariot was opposite me, thunder was heard. The exalted creatures then as though forbidden to move on star. This is why I said what I did at the beginning. It's got to be so hard for readers to read this well. It, all, the, all, of the, all of the testaments, old and new, are embodied in this procession um, that's for the sake of Beatrice coming to Dante. So it's a big thing. One of the most important things to see here is it can't just be left as literal abstractions. Somehow we have to imagine an, a miracle embodied in natural terms, exactly the way we do when we go to Mass and see a wafer or wine. This is not just literal abstractions. This is reality. And, and Dante's got to find ways of rendering it. Um, on page 365, the, the spectacle is overwhelming to Dante. 
you could imagine. Remember, his guide up to this point has been natural reason. It's been Virgil, who is capable of explaining everything. Now, 365. Sometimes as day approaches, I have seen all the eastern sky aglow of rose, the rest of heaven beautifully clear. Even so, within a nebula of flowers that flowed upward from angels' hands and then poured down, covering the chariot, appeared a lady over her white veil and olive crown, and under her green cloak, her, her gown, the color of eternal flame. I mean, we just have to see, imagine, Dante seen with his eyes, and yet what's before him is so much greater than anything his eyes have ever beheld before. Instantly, though many years have passed since I stood trembling before her eyes, captured by adoration, stunned by awe. Who is this? Does everybody know? Remember, Dante yeah. fell in love with this girl when he was 13. It was, yeah, it was Beatrice who, imaged, who gave him the first image of the Trinity when he saw her. It was one of those miraculous awakenings where you see something in a person and it changed him forever. Um, so we're re this is interesting because in one sense we're reaching the climax of the purgatorio at the very end. Captured by adoration, stunned by awe, my soul that could not see her perfectly still felt, succumbing to her mystery and power, the strength of its enduring love. No sooner my were, were my eyes struck by the force of the high piercing virtue I had known before I quit my boyhood years, than I turned to the left with all the confidence that makes a child run to its mother's arms when he's frightened or needs comforting to say to Virgil, not one drop of blood is left inside my veins that does not throb. I recognize signs of the ancient flame. It's as if that ancient love that was first awakened by him is now stirred. He turns to Virgil, but Virgil was not there. We found ourselves without Virgil's sweet father, Virgil to whom for my salvation I gave up my soul. Down to the page. I'm going to come back to this in a minute. Down to the page. Beatrice is looking at Dante and she says, Yes, look at me. Yes, I'm Beatrice. So you at last deign to climb the mount? You, she keeps addressing him, you, that impersonal. You learned at last that here lies human bliss. I lowered my head, looked down to the stream, but filled with shame at my reflection there. Um, she, uh, the women say, why are you shaming him so? Um, he says on page 367, Lady, why do you shame him so? The, the women cry. The bonds of ice packed tight around my heart dissolve, becoming breath and water. From my breast, through mouth and eyes, anguish came pouring forth. He's going to faint again. Um, Beatrice will say, 368. She's, she's taking him apart right now. Um, middle of 368, but the more vigorous the rich the soil, the wilder and the weedier it grows when left until its bad seeds flourishing. Dante was this gifted man. The richer the soil, the greater the rot. Shakespeare's famous poem, um, Lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. When the great gifts that we had, when they go bad, go worse than lesser gifts. There was a time my continent sufficed as I let him look into my eyes for guidance on the straight path to his gold. But when I passed into my second age and changed my life for life, that man you see st 
strayed after others and abandoned me when I had risen from the flesh to spirit, became more beautiful, more virtuous, he found less pleasure in me, loved me less. Go down, I prayed that inspiration come to him through dreams and other means. In vain I tried to call him back, so little did he care. Top of 369, to such depths did he sink that finally there was no other way to save his soul except to have him see the damned in hell. Dante was damned when this all began. So whether we've known it or not, we've been watching a soul, God, what to call it, being cleansed, learning to see, um, change his life. Now, a couple of questions here. Very, very important. Let's take the first one first. What does it mean that Virgil's gone? What does it... I love those lines. Um... No sooner were my eyes drawn, I quit my boy, then I turned to the left with all the confidence that makes a child run to its mother's arms. When he's frightened, he turns to Virgil, but Virgil was not there. What is this moment? Virgil's going back to hell. I used to find this really hard. I mean, um, I I'm, feel like I'm being educated by Melody and Connie on this one. <laughs> I love Virgil. You know, I, I love the Aeneid. I love, I love what Virgil does here. Dante calls him Father, Father. Virgil's gone. This is a stark. I, I mean, I was. I think I was being honest a minute ago. This, in some way, is a dramatic climax of the whole two thirds of the poem. What does this moment mean? What does it represent allegorically? Pretty painful thing, seems to me, in some ways. Like uh, he's like a little bird that's being thrown out of his nest. <laughs> what does it say about reason, Mike? What does it say about Virgil? Has has been natural. I don't want to reduce Virgil's the natural man. He has virtues. He's good. He's a good man. His reason is so sound. He can see. He can explain things. He's Dante's guide. Dante trusts him. He turns Dante around at the gates of Dees, you know, he, he, I mean, he does everything. So, to me, there's not enough to say about Virgil's goodness. So this moment is not a small one. Melody, go I, ahead. I think that um, Virgil took Dante as far as he could go, but that's why Beatrice is so upset with him, is that he had that foundation of faith. Uh, and she expected more out of him because he was Catholic, he was Christian, he did know what to do, and he squandered that. He he left uh, the church, he, he, he squandered his gifts, and so Virgil took him as far as he could go, but now Beatrice has to be there to push through the faith part of it and yeah. say, this is, this is where we need to go next. Yeah, I, I want to underscore this. It seems to me one of the things that allegorically that's going on is um, Virgil represents everything that's naturally good. I mean, we can't say enough. I just, I, I just don't think Virgil can be demeaned. He's, he's too good. But what Dante's making clear is that that goodness can only take a human being so far. And past that point, he needs something more. What he needs is faith and grace. And by the way, and I don't want to separate that, Nothing's going to happen between Beatrice and Dante that she won't, she won't explain in terms of reason. So this isn't just 
reason faith. It's so, it's so, this is not the Catholic world. It's so crucial that she's using reason, but it's a reason that's been graced by everything that's given to her through her faith and, and everything that everything that was given when she... Because remember those words. Um, when I had risen from the flesh to spirit, that is when she died, she became more beautiful. But no body. So Dante, I mean Dante's at the mercy of the body and the flesh and all the desires that come with the flesh. So she is scolding him. <laughs> lots of lots of modern... Actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do two... I've got two questions here. Another one just came to mind. Lots of modern critics, particularly modern feminist critics, are, are either like Beatrice or don't. I mean, some say that she's too scolding like a mother. So two questions here that are... And one of them I think is really subtle. Virgil's a man. Absolutely essential, I would say. Beatrice is a woman. Is there something to be said for that? Do we just go on and, you know, she brings, she brings a reason that's enriched by faith? Um, or is it essential to the story that it be a woman? Bob, did you have something? No. <laughs> where is she? Um, where? Where'd she go? Maria? Maria Cecilia? <laughs> What's your answer to that? <laughs> <laughs> No, no. Is there? Does it matter that it's a woman here? Is that just an accident? No. I'm going to say it is. Go ahead. Women so, are more in tune with their emotions, so she's more in tune. Men are more about their. Uh, they think with their. They, they're more... Be um, careful. <laughs> they're, they're more, you know, into what's happening at the moment and how they're feeling, and, or, but not physically feeling. And, and Beatrice is there to talk about love and more of the emotional part. So she's like the... The, the muses are all the women in Shakespeare that are the, the good women that are bringing everything back around... I can't remember them all right now. Helen or... <laughs> Poor Helen, Helen. Yeah. Well, yeah. I want to be careful here because I don't think it's just emotions. <laughs> Any more than men are just in their heads because emotions can be misleading and, and women who live by their emotions can find themselves in lots of trouble. Um, but emotions well-formed, remember the, the phrase that I quoted from Dante's Vita Nuova? Um, the, the women who have the intelligence of love. Um, so that's a very rational love. Um, emotions by themselves can't get to it because emotions can't guide anybody. It's the intellect that guides us. It's what we see that we turn our loves to. Beatrice's loves are well-ordered. Um, 
but it seems to me one of the reasons that, uh, one of the reasons she's important. It's really interesting. I I, I don't want to take too much time, but I, but I just throw it out for you guys to think about. Um, all the heroes of the epic, the Western epic, are men. That's not going to settle well with the modern audience. Um, all the all the heroes are male. It's the men who have to get their lives in order. Um, and it's it's interesting here. I think one of the reasons it's Beatrice is because she's the one who awakened desire in Dante. I mean, men are very susceptible to the beauty of women. Always have been. Um, I'm not overstating that either. I mean, just because it's a personal belief of mine, if you read history, men, and we know that very often men are... Um, are moved towards the women by their beauty and then later become come to regret it because there's something else beneath that beauty that isn't always nice. I mean, we've seen that before, you know, lots of times. But but the, the desires, the men's desires are generally awakened powerfully by the beauty of women. It's been a constant theme since the Iliad. The war was over Helen. Um, but here, it's, it's a Christ-bearing image of a woman so she awakened all these desires in Dante, and some of them were divine, but Dante betrayed them. He, he, he led this life that turned away towards the world, and um, now she's scolding him. Let me take on the last one. Why is she scolding him so much? Is it appropriate? Is it appropriate, or there's lots, some feminists, some women think, and some men, I think, call her a scold. She's just an overbearing scold, like a bad mom. What do you guys say? Connie, is what she does, is, is it appropriate or is it too much? Or why is she scolding him so? I mean, she really, <laughs> yes, look at me. Yes, I am. So you at last have deigned. So you've condescended to climb the mountain. You you learned at last that there lies human bliss. <laughs> she's going to shame him so much that he's going to... She just says he was on his way to being damned. She was the one who came to get Virgil. <clears throat> well, she, says it, she says at one point, and I'm not reading it from the, the text, but I, I went all the way to hell to bring you back. So even if she's a bit of a scold, you know, she's... She has something, she, she has, she can be justly angry for having gone to the, the depths of hell to retrieve him. Yeah. I mean, to, to communicate with Virgil there. And, yeah. And yeah. I'm going to be with Mike, and I'm, I mean, nobody else is stepping forward. The, the women are quiet on this. I'm like, it seems to me that she's absolutely, we did, I, we did, we didn't do the winter. Did we do the? We didn't do the Winter's Tale. Shakespeare's Winter's Tale. Paulina and that, um, she just takes the king apart, and there are lots of men who call her a scold, and I just think, no way. I mean, she's doing what she should do. We, we have to wait to get to that play. But my my response to Beatrice is, um, it's pretty much along the lines of Mike, that it's a righteous anger. It's justified. Um, uh, uh, a woman in this position would be perfectly appropriate in her place to say what she says to Dante. Um, what's the 
what's the, uh, on page 372, um, he says, the recognition of my guilt so stunned my heart that I fainted what happened then is known only to her who was the cause of it. He faints again, except this time it's, you know, in her presence. Um, this is really an important moment. Uh, Matilda comes to take Dante, 373. She takes him to the river Lethe. And it's there that Dante has all the sins. So, Beatrice has scolded him. Um, she's... Um, She's reminded him of his sins and his betrayals and his failures. Um, and then Matilda um, dips him in the Lethe. It's, it's really important to see this. Remember in the Lethe in Virgil, when, um, when Aeneas went into the underworld, all of the souls went into the Lethe to have their memories washed of the underworld so that they would return to the world and face their mortality. They were going to die again in, you know, because of this belief in reincarnation. Here, when Dante emerges from the um, Lethe, the river Lethe, he's going to enter into bliss, into the real world that was unchanging. So all of his sins are washed away. Um, on page 373, just after that happens, um, a thousand yearning flames of my desire held my eyes fixed upon these brilliant eyes that held the griffin fixed within their range. Like sunlight in a mirror shining back, I saw the twofold creature in her eyes. This is crucial. Beatrice is looking at the griffin, who's dual in image, eagle and um, um, horse, lion. And he's a dual image of Christ. Beatrice looks at the griffin, who's a dual image of Christ. She's seeing Christ in his dual nature, and Dante looks into her eyes at that moment. A thousand yearning flames at my desire held my fixed eyes upon those brilliant eyes that held the griffin fixed within their range. Like sunlight in a mirror shining back, I saw the twofold creature in her eyes reflecting its two natures separately. Imagine, reader, how amazed I was to see the creature standing there unchanged, yet in its image changing constantly. And while my soul, delighted and amazed, was tasting of that food which satisfies and at the same time makes one hungrier, the other three revealing in their mien their more exalted rake came dancing forth accompanied by angelic melody. She's looking at the griffin, an image of Christ, he looks at her and sees Christ in her, and this is the description. While my soul, delighted and amazed, was tasting of that food which satisfies and at the same time makes one hungrier. Somebody paraphrase that. I think it's one of those perfect descriptions of heaven that I've ever read. What are those words saying? Here, Doug. Okay, I think it is a parallel of um, love because in a marriage you see Christ or in any relationship you see Christ reflected in that person 
and you want to be a better person because of it. You want to know more about it. So it encourages you to become better. So in this instance, Dante sees Christ in Beatrice's eyes and wants to continue on. He knows this isn't the stopping point. He wants to continue on to improve, to, uh, to find out more. Yeah. Anybody else? Did you have something to add? Yeah. I can't. Huh? I said I can, but I don't need to. To, to me, one of the reasons I, I love this passage so much is, is, remember, so much about what this poem is about is desire being awakened by beauty of a person, the goodness of a person. It's the goodness or the beauty of something that awakened desires in a soul. That's true for all of us. It's in our nature. But for the first time since, um, oh, here, hold on to this. I'm going to come back because I don't want to forget this. Dante was just crowned and mitered by Virgil. When Beatrice comes, he turns to, Dun or to Virgil for heaven and Virgil's gone. We thought when they left the ledge of the lustful and entered Eden, purgatory was over. But Dante's just got this tongue lashing from Beatrice. And here at this moment, all of the desires that he's ever known as a human being are suddenly satisfied. But the amazing thing is, this. I mean, the question to ask here, is heaven static? Because lots of people think of heaven as static. Dante's saying no. While my soul delighted and amazed, how many of us have ever tasted food and been satisfied and still wanted more? What Dante's saying is when you look at Christ, every desire that you've ever had will be answered and it will set you on longing for more. Infinitely. That's amazing, because if God is infinite, how can love not, I don't know how to put it, keep on loving? So while you're satisfied, every desire is answered, you still, that's an amazing paradox. So Dante's just, you know, had this moment, and I'm, I want to go to the mask, and I want to jump to the Paradiso, because I want to finish. So what's just happened right now is a climax, in a sense, to the whole hell purgatory action of the Commedia. But I want to go back to this question that I just asked, because I've, I've been meaning to ask it, and I don't want to forget it. Virgil and Dante and Stasius um, rose from the ledge of the lustful and stepped onto um, the earthly paradise, to Eden, where everything has been... This extraordinary, beautiful experience, fulfilling. I asked the question in the note I sent you. Think about the forest that began the poem. Dante was in a dark wood. Now he's in another forest. He wants to do nothing but explore. There he wanted to get away. It was the world. Now he sees this thing and his soul is set on longing for more. The only answer to it would be to enter the heavens. I mean, that's where they're about to go. But before we go there, we thought purgatory was over. How do you explain what happens? Is everybody clear? Purgatory is over. But she is really thrashing him. You know, and, and she finally takes him, or Matilda takes him to Lethe, and his, his uh, memory of bad deeds were washed. And then Dante knows this joy. He looks into the eyes of Beatrice, and she's looking at Christ, and he sees Christ, and he has this amazing moment. 
where every desire is satisfied and he wants more. But but the real question I want to um, ask before we quickly get to the end of the purgatory, and I want to start the Paradiso. If, if purgatory was over, why this? What's Dante doing? Doesn't that puzzle you? Purgatory is over. Well, but Dante is just a visitor passing through purgatory. He has not uh, participated in all of the levels so as to purge his soul. Yeah, but it, yes, yes, you're right, Mike. But I think there's something happening here because all the sins were apparently purged. You know, the angel keeps wiping sins off, the peas on Dante's forehead. They've all been washed. He gets lighter and lighter. Okay, that's true. He's true. prepared to go to, you know, he gets on. The presumption, I think, is he's done. And then he has this meeting with Beatrice, and it's the precondition for going into the heavens. So something, something happened, something's happening here that's, and you have a thought? Well, I'm kind of going back. When Beatrice is, thr is thrashing him, uh, it was almost like confession. He's not saying it, but she's, she's seeing what he is and is, is talking to him. It also, to me, she was almost like a Christ figure. Christ thrashed. He he was good, but he he let people know what they were doing was wrong. <laughs> Didn't just accept it. Well, yeah. She wants him she wants him to confess. To say it. Himself. Say it loud, Doug. She wants him ah. to confess, to own up. There you go. To his to his sins. He's been through and gone through each of the levels and learned all about them and had the peas wiped away, but he's never said mea culpa. He never suffered, right? So this is his way of coming to grips with it. With suffering. this, with say that, I'm not, make the, sorry, Mildred, what are you saying about well, suffering? He never really suffered. He didn't go through the fire. Oh, 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 oh. I mean, he went through the fire at the end, but he never really carried any burdens on his back. He watched other people, and he grew, and he learned. But he never, he never said, I am guilty of this. And this was her way of making him come to grips with that. Yeah. And I think that heaven, it's, you know, it's not just a beautiful place that the heaven is being in true union with God. So you might get to the garden of Eden and fall in love with it and think you never want to leave, mm -hmm. but she's, you know, pushing, don't be satisfied. There's more to this. So that's my take on it. Yeah. I wouldn't put it. Don't be satisfied. There's more. She's, she's grinding him into the ground. <laughs> she's saying you've been satisfied too, with too many. She's really, this is an anger. It's really, let me offer another thought just for you guys to think about. Um, because this, this moment, I, I really am enjoying the what you guys are saying right now, all of you, um, Suzanne and Melody and Anne. One of the questions I've always had about this scene is this. Beatrice is the one who awakened desire in Dante, the first one that was notable. Um, and it's just, a, the question that I have about this is whether or not that 
um, any of us remain faithful to that first love, whatever it was. I look back on the first time that I, I fell in love with a girl, and I am so embarrassed, really ashamed at times. I mean, nothing happened, but, but when I look, I, there's such an innocence to us, and I wonder if Dante isn't saying that every one of us will have a personal reckoning with somebody who's been a love of our life. You know, um, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if I saw Suzanne there and she had some things to say to me, or I, you know, or I. I mean, I, I just think there, there's an intimacy and a depth of something and an innocence to that original love. And it was great, and and we know that we know the extent of it because she said, you know, when I had risen from the flesh to spirit, became more beautiful. Right at that time when he should have been more faithful, he wasn't. She's the one who awakened that love. So I wonder if there isn't something deeply intimate and personal that finally has to be a reckoning. It, and I, I'm enjoying what you guys said, because if it were, it's with a Christ-like person who's been a Christ-like person to us in our lives. So, I, just, I just throw that out, because I, I just think there's something so dramatic going on here. But sorry, Mary Jane, go ahead. So when you were talking about how she was thrashing him and being really hard on him, and in my little mind I was thinking, well, he, he was in love with her when he was practically a boy, but it never went any farther. And maybe she's still, <laughs> still a little ticked off about that. Because <laughs> he went and married somebody else. Of course, she was too old for him, but still, he was her first love. Yeah. I mean, she was his first love. Yeah. So maybe she was just, maybe that was, I don't know. No, I, was, I, I honestly, I don't think so. There's nothing vindictive in Beatrice. She's Christ. There's nothing, it's That's, not, you know, he, he, he spurned me for, no, there's none of that women's he spurned me for him or a man, she, you know, left me or, there's nothing vindictive. I think it's a righteous anger, but I think there's a sense as a Christ image, that she's calling him to task because he was not faithful to the most important love he had in his life. And my, if my, my sense of this scene is that, combined with what you guys are saying, is that it, it makes me wonder if there isn't a personal wrecking with a Christ image, whoever that would be for any one of us. I don't know. But it's interesting because this is really the dramatic climax of the whole of the Purgatorium. What goes on here is pretty intense. He loses Virgil. She confronts him in a merciless way. She's, she really takes him down. He's, his sins are washed away, and he um, awakens to this glory. So this is a moment of reckoning and coming to something that's so beyond anything Virgil could have given him. And it's only possible through a Christ-bearer, somebody in whom Christ is alive. Let me, let's, here, I want to, um, I want to get to the end, if I, there are two masks that Dante, or Beatrice puts on for Dante, involving church history, uh, there, we don't have time to go into them, they're, they're so elaborate, and we could spend, we could spend a whole evening going over each one of them. It seems to me that what's happening is close to what I was describing with the Eucharist, that all of church history um, is being presented 
Um, in the second one that, that deals with God's justice at work in the world, Dante falls asleep for a while. Some critics wonder if his sleep doesn't correspond to a period of rest in the church because the pageant that's being presented is the history of the church unfolding. I don't know that. I mean, one of the questions I have is whether or not um, Dante's not fully prepared for it, that, that it's so abstract that he falls asleep. I'm not sure, but, but the, in the second one he does. But when it's over, this is where I wanted to get to, when it's over, um, on page 385, um, Matilda takes him to the river of Unoe, and this is something entirely original with Dante. The river Lethe was a, um, a common um, trope for classical literature. Anybody steeped in classical literature would know it. It's the river you, in which you um, dip yourself to, to um, have your memories of things washed away. But here, this is entirely new to Dante. He has Matilda take him, or she, Beatrice has her take Dante to the river of Unoe, where his memory of good deeds um, is restored. So he comes out... Um, changed again. It's not just that he no longer holds on to his memory of bad deeds. All the goodness that was a part of his life is revitalized. Page 385. Um, so at the top of 385 she said, Why do they, so that you may come truly to know that school which you have followed and we and see how well its doctrine follows mine also that you may see that mankind's ways are just as far away from those divine as earth is from the highest spinning sphere this is a moment of recognizing the world is misleading in every respect to that i answered i cannot recall ever having estranged myself from you i have no guilty conscience everybody i mean all the women and, and beatrice is pleased at that moment because he's had his memory of bad things erased, and now he can't even remember that he ever did anything not good with her. You say that you do not remember it smiling, she said, but surely you recall drinking of Letha's waters just today, and even as fire cannot be inferred from smoke, your lack of memory is patent proof that your estrangement from me was a sin. But from now on, I promise you, my, my words will be as plain as they will have to be for you, your uneducated mind to grasp. Um, um, Dante is washed in the river Unoe, and his whole way of seeing is entirely changed. Um, 386, I've already made this choice clear to him, this and much more, and Letha, I'm sure, could not have washed away the memory. Then Beatrice, a more important thing perhaps weighs on his mind, depriving him of memory and clouding his mind's eye. But here before us is the um, stream Unoe. Now lead him there, and as is your want, revive his weakened powers in its flow. Um, all of his powers of goodness, it's like he's been completely reintegrated and become who God had given him to be and given a grace now. Then gracious as she was without demure, submitting her own will to another's. Notice how 
obedient Matildas. I mean, there, there's nothing but graciousness in God's kingdom. The lovely lady took me by the hand and said to Stasius as she moved ahead, with queenly modesty, and you come too. Reader, if I'd had right, space to write more words, I'd sing, at least in part, of that sweet draught, which never could have satisfied my thirst. But now I've completed every page planned for my poem, Second Canticle. I am checked by the bridle of my art. From those holiest waters, I return to her reborn, a tree renewed, the old tree lost in the garden, in bloom with newborn foliage, immaculate, eager to rise, now ready for the stars. Remember, that's how um, the hell ended that... Um, that um, Dante and Virgil rose from hell to see the stars again. That's how each one of the canticles will end, with Dante seeing the stars in God's order. Now, one last thing before we turn back to 31 for a minute on page um, 133. Or, hold on, I'm finding it. No, sorry, 31. Oh, no, sorry, hold on. No, sorry, page three, 383. Before we leave this, 383. This is really important. 383, line 31. Um, this is um, just before Dante will be washed in the river Unoe. She says to Dante, 383, It is my wish that you from now on free yourself from fear and shame and cease to speak like someone in a dream. Know that the vessel, that's the church, which the serpent broke was vessel which the serpent broke was, was and, is, and is not, let him who bears the blame learn that God's vengeance has no fear of sops. The eagle that shed feathers on the car that would become a monster then prey will not remain forever without heirs. I tell you this because I clearly see those stars which already near that will bring in a time, its advent nothing can prevent, in which 510 and 5 shall be God's emissary born to kill the giants and the usurping whore with him. What Dante's just witnessed in the mask is the church becoming a whore. Um, remember when it was um, when it moved from Rome to Avignon in Paris and there became multiple popes and the, the church was steeped in corruptions. Dante's description of that is um, as a whore. Um, she says, 383 at the bottom, Note well my words, what I have said to you, because remember, Dante's just seen the, the whole of church history, so he has an awareness of everything the church has done, like Jerusalem or the, the um, Israelites turning from God, the way the church has turned from God in periods of real corruption. Um, and she's speaking to him now, aware that he's got to be aware of this in the work that he's got ahead of him. So she says... Note well my words, what I have said to you, you will repeat as you teach those who live that life, which is merely a race to death. Now remember she said above, she doesn't want him acting anymore in fear or shame, 
to stop acting like somebody in a dream. Here she says, um, as you teach those who live that life which is merely a race to death, 384, when you write, be sure that you describe the sad condition of the tree you saw despoiled, not once but twice here on this spot. Whoever robs this tree or breaks its limbs sins against God, blasphemes its deeds, for he created it to serve his holy self. So the mask has shown the, the, the ancient tree and the events surrounding it, the fall from Eden and the periodic lapses of the church. She's giving him for the first time um, his mission. Even though Dante's had hints of his future, she now he now gets it clear the way Aeneas did for Anchises in the Aeneid. Because you remember when when Aeneas went into the underworld, it was from his father that he received his mission, that he finally knew after all the missed you know, the missed opportunities and failed um, foundings that he had to go on to do, um, to found Rome. Here Dante learns from Beatrice that um, he is to write um, something prophetic to help the church find itself and for those souls um, um, who want to find themselves. Let me just quickly go to the opening of the Paradiso just to start something here. I want to get us going. Um, Canto 1 begins, The glory of the one who moves all things, penetrates all the universe, reflecting in one part more, one less. He makes um, a final invocation, appealing for, um, to, the, um, to God for help. And then, in, on page 393, he describes Beatrice um, turning and looking up. Saw Beatrice turn round, facing left, her eyes raised to the sun. No eagle ever could stare so fixed and straight into such light as one descending ray of light will cause a second one to rise back up again, off water, off a mirror. Just as a pilgrim yearns to go back home, so like a ray her act poured through my eyes into my mind and gave rise to my own. I stared straight at the sun as no man could. Go down, Beatrice's, Beatrice stood there, her eyes fixed on the eternal spheres, entranced, and now my eyes, withdrawn from high, were fixed on her. Gaze, 394, gazing at her, I felt my son becoming like Glaucus, Glaucus had become, tasting the herb that made him like the other sea gods there. It's an old myth about a guy tasting a, an herb and feeling like he was transformed. Transhumanized, it cannot be explained, perverba, so let this example serve until God's grace grants the experience. She looks up. Dante looks at her. It's another one of those moments, just like his looking into her eyes when she looked at the griffin. He can look at the sun, and at this moment he's describing himself as being transhumanized. We don't have time to go farther, but just to give you a sense, they're going to enter the sphere of moon, Dante's actually going to enter the sphere. In our world, you know that no two bodies can occupy the same space. That's a physical law of matter. Dante is in a changed condition. Transhumanized is his word. He can look at the sun. His body, he and Beatrice, will enter the sphere of the moon 
and it will be there that he will meet Picarda and Constance, and that will begin his journey into the heavens. Let me stop. There's I, I wanted to get to the two of them and Canto 7. Canto 7 is going to be one of the most important in the whole of the Commedia, so be sure you read it closely, but let me stop. Um, Dante and Beatrice are now entering a dimension that Virgil could never have taken Dante into. These are truths um, that are only available to a reason. Don't separate those. It's not just faith. It's a reason infused with faith. She will be explaining mysteries to the universe that Virgil could never have done. Okay? Um, I, a huge urge, you guys. Um, I think all of you have the study guide. Um, my, I would suggest, urge you all to take a look at the uh, schemes in the study guide. The, the, I think they're on page 44, 45, somewhere there. They're really helpful. They, they show you that at every level, every sphere, some, some jewel, some light, some substance, some, something's happening to show that Dante is entering um, deeper and deeper mysteries. And Beatrice is unfolding them making them available to reason. So we're entering into a, a pretty amazing mystery right now. And at the center of it, this is, at the center of, is, the, is the highest thing in creation, the human being. Set that against our modern view of ourselves. So what Dante does in the Paradiso is, is really amazing. So I, I would really urge you strongly to look at the, at the uh, schemes. Hell and purgatory are relatively easy. They're, you know, you can follow the schemes easily. What he's doing in the Paradiso is so much more intellectual, so much more theological. It's just harder to follow. So uh, the schemes will help a lot. Um, let me stop. Any questions about what just happened with where, where we ended up in the Purgatory and what we're setting off into right now? May I ask, Dante's audience back then, I mean, did, were they able to understand the symbolism kind of like a revelation? I mean, were they able to understand, normal people able to understand the symbolism or, because, okay, so it was up to the church fathers to kind of. Yeah, it would have been the educated melody, and you know that the education was, education in Dante's time was confined to the courts and the uh, churches to the convents and you know they the, the real centers of learning were the monasteries and the major cities and courts the masses of people weren't educated and just I want to point out an irony today in America we pride ourselves in, in believing that all people should be educated and if they're not they're deprived if, if you were to present this to 90 percent of the people educated today they would not be able to read it um, I don't know if you guys have ever watched Tucker on on uh, Fox. He used to have this program called Tucker's or Waters World. He'd go around to campuses and ask educated people on campuses who the president was or who Lincoln was, or you know, I mean, it was just fundamental questions in history that 40 years ago you'd get in sixth grade, almost never answered. I mean, education right now is not doing well by by kids, so. Um, even even if even if we presented this, I think, to an educated audience today, most people, you guys are a rare, you guys are a rare group. You are amazingly rare. 
amazingly rare. Okay, one more quick question. When Dante goes to paradise, um, when he goes to the moon and goes to Mercury, goes to Venus, are those steps that people are taking or are they stuck on the sphere that they're on? Are they stuck on the moon? Are they, I, I, that I didn't, I haven't been able to figure out. Okay, hold on. Hold on. I mean, I understand they're happy where they're at. I get that. But but then I thought I read something almost like they were going to all end up in the same place. Yeah, I wanted to, I, I was going to give you an assignment, but I can't find it. Boy, I wish I'd, I, I, <laughs> um, I'm here, I'll, I'll, no, I'll answer it. I'll stop being mean. Even, even though it's you, I'll stop being mean for a second. <laughs> um what Picard and Constant are going to make clear, I actually it's a really good question, but I, I would have been so glad if I'd had the quote because then I would heap it on you. Um, what Picard uh, makes clear to Dante is, it's a really good question. Um, in one sense, what it really, I mean your question is really good. In, in the same way that the stages of the Purgatorio show the, the growth in Dante, or anybody taking those steps. The same kind of growth takes place here in terms of faith where you enter more deeply into mysteries. Now stop and think, I mean it's so good to your, how many people are educated enough today to even enter into the mysteries to, to see that, that there's something they can learn once they enter a world of faith. After the Protestant Reformation it's as if once you enter a world of faith you're in a world in which reason doesn't operate. But what's happening here is reason is penetrating these mysteries available to faith. Virgil wouldn't see them. So every one of those steps represents a growth in faith and entering more deeply into a tradition, bearing more, seeing more, more being asked of you, more being offered. But um, the sinners come to him to greet him at a, at a place that's appropriate for his learning. So Constance and, and Picard come not because they're there, because they make clear that they're all they're all united in the Imperium. It's that they're coming there um, to meet Dante at his own level. So they're going to present him with basic truths at that level. As we move up the paradise, we're gonna we're gonna encounter more more sophisticated deeper, richer kinds of truths that, that reason will penetrate. So it's a growth in, it's just, in, we live in a world that separates faith and reason. The Catholic world doesn't do that. Dante's showing us that where there are mysteries, there is more to be known. And reason can penetrate some of that. So the ascent of the heavens is a growth in the richness of what those two powers can bring to to Dante or to anybody. Any other any other questions? Boy, this is heavy. You guys are good. You guys are good. Amazing. I'm saying that truthfully too. Amazing. Okay. Um, keep us in your prayers, please. Um, keep each other in your prayers. Um, we will all keep you in our prayers. Um, you all stay safe. Um, next week is Holy Week. I'm trusting we will meet. Do you want to cancel next week or is everybody okay to meet next Tuesday? 
Okay, see you all next week. You all have a good week, okay? And continue to have a really good Lent. Continue to have a good Lent, all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Good thank, night. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Good night.